It's good to be here this morning. Uh, I uh, have known a lot of people here for a long time, and so it's great to be here. Um, I just wanted, I, I, uh, I do a lot of traveling, um, and I don't often get to do this, but tomorrow I'm supposed to fly out to El Salvador, and so my family um, decided to accompany me, and so I'd like to introduce them. First of all, is my gorgeous wife, Alice. And uh, she, uh, she is really a woman of prayer, and if we really believe that everything's by prayer, I do. And so I see God doing things through me, and I know it's a result of her getting on her knees and fighting like a man. Um, and then um, we have uh, my daughter, Charity Grace, if you'll stand up. And she, uh, she, she lives up to her name. She loves people. And uh, it's just really neat to see um, the way that she reaches out and touches um, some of her friends. And then we thought we were really good parents. And then we had Sammy. <laughs> Sammy has more energy than Exxon. And uh, he also is uh, maybe the boldest Christian I know. He is completely and totally unashamed of his faith, and he shares it continuously. And um, I uh, sat in church the other day, the church that uh, we attend here in the States, and I counted nine people that were there because of my kids. And um, I always challenge the elders how many people are here because of you. And uh, so... I'm very proud of them, and God has really blessed me with a great family. I'd like to share a little bit. Um, uh, I'm with uh, part of international ministries called Envision. And what we try to do is we're the, the short-term part. We're trying to mobilize the church um, to be more involved in missions. And so what we do is we go to a field, and we talk to the long-term missionaries, and we talk to the national church and we figure out their master plan and figure out what part of it can we come in and do more effectively as short-term teams or as in interns. And um, we've had exciting, last, uh, last year we sent 1,700 uh, people on short-term teams and over 200 uh, went out for anywhere from three, three months to two years. And so we see God moving, and uh, Cricket, I'm probably not supposed to say this publicly, but we hope to open St. Petersburg this, this next year. Um, and, um, and we're just excited. One of the, the neat things I've been able to do is I was able to uh, make contact with a large Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's one of the exciting things, is we're able to bring more and more people into what we're happening. And um, I, what we're what we're doing overseas is pretty exciting, and I always like to go up to other churches and say, "Hey, if you have more bang for your buck, go for it." But I bet you don't. And um, so uh, this Baptist church came out, and I challenged them to take on an unreached people group, and they were a little shocked, of course. And uh, so they sent a leadership team out, and they sat down with our national church who had a heart to reach the Pugali. In 1999, there was not one believer among the Pugali. Two years ago, I walked into the, the 20th church of over 100 Pugali Christians. There's never been a full-time missionary assigned to that people group. 
It's a community of faith here mobilizing and empowering the community of faith there to create a new community of faith. And we have a place. If you have a heart, we will find a place. Um, and age is no longer uh, 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 an excuse. Our, the best turn we, intern we ever had turned 60 while she was out there. She was actually from a Methodist church, and she was head of HR of Notre Dame University. And she got a year absence from her job. She moved to Burkina Faso. And uh, we assigned her to work in a, in a very poor area with um, widows or abandoned uh, wives with children who had no income. And she helped them learn how to make a living. But more importantly, she saw over 40 of them come to Christ. And she had a chance to disciple them. And so uh, we're about, you know, we in the Alliance, we say that one of our core values is to accomplish the Great Commission Fund. It's going to take every single uh, follower of Christ. And uh, do you believe that? Okay, y'all, I'm an African. Y'all are going to have to do a better t- job of talking back to me. Do you believe that? Yes. Then we need to go. Amen? There's so much darkness and there's so many places to go. And we want to come alongside you and help you change the world. And so uh, that's a little bit of what, what I do. I'd like to share a little bit of my testimony and uh, even how I got to Burkina Faso. I felt a calling to be a missionary as a, a young child. And um, I was five. And I, I had a distinct call. And I felt... Uh, I always went back to that because it was powerful. And I went through college. I went through seminary. I was in um, in uh, in a home service in Lexington, North Carolina. And um, I wanted to go to the mission field. I'd fill out all the paperwork. And there was an unspoken policy at that time that they didn't send single males to Africa. But fortunately, we have leaders that see beyond policies. And they decided to send me anyways, and two weeks later I met my wife Alice in Burkina Faso. So I'm grateful to have leaders that see that sometimes God doesn't work in little boxes. Um, And uh, so I arrived in Burkina Faso, and I set up uh, right away... uh, Accountability. I wanted to make sure that I didn't go left or right, that I stay focused on the cross and on Jesus Christ. And so I began to work with a missionary uh, named Larry Berg, and once a week we'd get together and ask each other the hard questions, and then we'd spend time on our knees praying. And it became a very precious time for me. And on one particular day he called me up and he said, Pete, today we can't pray, but I'm going to come and get you. I said, okay. So a few minutes later, he showed up with uh, the mission van, and I went out and got in it, and he told me the story. He says, you know, Pete, we're trying to plant a church in Sector 30, which is a very poor area. And I said, yeah, I know that. And he says, well, uh, in that church, we have an elder. And I said, I, yeah, and he named the elder, and I knew him. And he says, um, well, this elder has a job. And in a country that 88% of the population does not, it's kind of a big deal. But financially, he was always struggling because he was responsible for his entire family. And so he was always even having to take advances on his salary, and he was very careful. Well, this elder had three children. And that week, all three children got sick. 
Well, we have one doctor for every 42,000 people. And so when your children get sick, you don't go running to the doctor. You try to wait it out. And hopefully they can beat the sickness without cost. You don't have to buy medicine and you don't have to pay to go see a doctor. And so he started the waiting game. And as he was waiting, he began to realize that his middle daughter, Fatih, was getting sicker and sicker. And so finally he decided... I'm going to have to take her to the clinic. He went around. He borrowed somebody's moped. And if you can picture this four-year-old frail little girl climbing up and holding on to her daddy and riding 30 minutes on a moped to a clinic. When they arrived, it was after time. And there was nobody ready to help them right away. And so they sat in the waiting room. And Fatih got sicker. And they sat in the waiting room, and Fatih got weaker. And they sat and waited, and Fatih died in her daddy's arms, waiting for help. The next morning, Larry and I showed up at their house. I don't think I'll ever forget that day. We pulled up and it was an old mud courtyard and in the back was a mud house with two windows, two rooms. And they had swept it clean and they had put down grass mats and there was literally about 100 people sitting on the grass mats. And when we pulled up, they jumped out and graciously came up and greeted us and escorted us to the house where the father was. And I remember walking into this room and there was just a little bit of light coming in from the window. And as I stood there, there stood this man and at his feet was a rolled up grass mat. And I remember thinking, I just feel powerless. Because I knew the rolled up grass mat held the body of his four-year-old daughter. We went through the cultural greetings and I just, I wanted to do more. About that time, the men came in from the church. The men in the church had been out digging since first light, but it was dry season. And in dry season, it you can go eight months without a rain and, and the ground becomes extremely hard. And they said the grave isn't deep enough and it's not big enough, but this, this body's been dead for, for several hours and if we don't get it in the ground, the sun is getting hot. And so we picked up the grass mat and we carried it out and we put it in the back of the van. I began to drive and I remember snaking through this just extremely poor area where people literally don't eat every day. And we came along, came along, and and finally we got to the cemetery. And and I was driving and um, I remember stopping, shutting off the engine. And I opened the door and I jumped out. And as I jumped out, my head went down. And when my eyes came up, What I saw shook me to my very core as I had never been shaken before. 
Because see, as far as I could see left, and as far as I could see right, and as far as I could see with me, in front of me, because the Harmaton had blown in the, 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 the wind off the Sahara Desert with a lot of dust, and you couldn't see very far, but it, as far as I could see, I saw nothing but mound after mound after mound. And on these mounds was a single steel rod. And at the top of the rod was a moon and a star representing that that person had died and had never known Jesus Christ. And as I stood on the vast of this huge cemetery, I began to realize what it represented. It represented literally tens of thousands of souls that were in hell. And hell is forever. And I stood and it just shook me. And I, as I stared across the cemetery, I began to really understand the reality of what I was seeing. And I literally thought I was going to vomit. And I remember standing there and crying out to God and saying, God, this isn't good enough for me. I don't want to know that there are places that represent 10,000 souls in hell. Let me go back and play church somewhere, but don't let me know that there are this many people living and dying in darkness. Then I realized I was standing alone. And everyone had already walked over and were standing on the edge of the grave. I walked over and I stood there. I guess we sang some songs, said a prayer, and we piled the dirt upon the body of this little girl. And I stood there and I looked at the elder and I said uh, Chen is my good friend I said Chen we're Christians this is a Christian funeral there are other women here where's the mother Chen said this child has been done dead over 18 hours And the mother is still crying so hard, the family was embarrassed to allow her to come to her own daughter's funeral. I could feel the anger beginning to burn within me. And then I heard that voice that you hate to hear. God said, Pete, who do you think you are? Have you forgotten that one out of every three children born in the Sahel, that part of sub-Saharan Africa, one out of three die before age 10. And so if you're going to be a mother, you're going to bury a child. And if you can't accept that, You're an embarrassment. But what I heard next 
changed my life. The medicine that would have saved that little girl's life cost less than two dollars. We let a little girl die for two dollars. I would have gladly given it if only I had known. But the reality is across the cell on a daily basis, there are literally thousands that die for small amounts of medicine. In fact, I don't know if you know the statistic, but yesterday, 11,000 children died in Africa. 3,000 from malaria, 4,000 from malnutrition, 4,000 from waterborne diseases. They can't even drink clean water. And today, another 11,000 will die, and tomorrow 11,000 will die, and it will continue until, as we sang, the church arises. Amen? Amen. Over the last decade, a trillion dollars has been poured into Africa, and statistically, they're worse off now than before they started. There's one exception. The church where we have worked, we have changed, we have seen long-lasting change. Amen? Jesus is the answer for Africa. Do you believe it? Then what are we going to do about it? Will you pray? Really pray as you never have before. Not... Pitter patter, God bless God. I mean, but getting on your knees and fighting like a man. Will you go? Some of you for two weeks, some of you for two years, some of you for the rest of your life, some of you to Russia, some of you to China, some of you to Morocco. In the country of Morocco, for every one person there's going to heaven, there are 35. 35,000 going to hell. Countries like Libya, we can count how many Christians there are on our hands. Where is the church? Well, we arrive. I can no longer speak. I got in my car. And I drove back to my house and I got on my knees and wept for a little girl I'd never met. And I cried out to the Lord and I said, Lord, this just isn't good enough for me. And the Lord says, it's not good enough for me either. And that's why I'm asking you to stay in Burkina Faso and join the team here. And we can change a country. I said, the second God, isn't that big for you? What a dumb question. But is changing a country like Burkina Faso too big for your God? Y'all, I'm African. Is it too big for your God? No. Is it too big for your God? No. Do you believe he can change? So do I. And I think the Lord has given us an example found in uh, Luke chapter 19, if you have your Bibles. 
I think that he has shown what impact he can have in a short period of time. And uh, if you know the Luke 19, it's about Zacchaeus. You remember the wee little man and the wee little man? You know, I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. Um, you know, and um, if you would just kind of put your fingers in there, we're going to look at a couple verses. I'm going to tell the story real quickly. Jesus is in a popular time of his ministry, and he's walking through Jericho, and there's people everywhere. And they're crowding, they're in front of him, they're behind him. They're all wanting to see a miracle or, or hear a word that are just so powerful it goes straight to the heart. And as Jesus is walking along, he stops under a tree. And there stands a man, probably dressed similar to I than me, looking pretty silly up in this tree. And I'm sure people started to laugh. And he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down from going to your house today. And Zacchaeus' life is completely transformed because he had lunch with Jesus. Amen? So I'd like to look at this a little bit more in particular. And um, first of all, verse 2 tells us a couple things about Zacchaeus. Number one, that he was a tax collector. Now, um, it's funny because in the first service there was a tax collector in the service, so I had to be careful. Are there any here now? Okay, well then I'll go for it. Um, but uh, but the, the difference was, of course, that these tax collectors were taking money from their own people and giving it to the country, to their enemy, Rome, that was keeping their country in captivity. They were literally betraying their own families. And he was a tax collector. And I mean, tax collectors were scum. I mean, they really were. They were really the... Everybody hated him. But he wasn't just a tax collector. He was chief tax collector. So he wasn't just scum. He was chief scum. And, and the other thing we know about is he is rich. So guess what? We know he was good at embezzling money from his own people in order to get rich. And then the other thing we know is he was, he was a short little punk. Right? And so we look at this guy and all we see is a short little punk. And you're like, really, Jesus? You're on earth three years? Your ministry is three years? And you're going to invest a day on this scummy little punk? From our standpoint, it doesn't even look very strategic. But the problem is, we see a scummy little little punk. But Jesus sees something different. Verse 3. It says he wanted to see who Jesus was. Amen? Behind the mask of corruption, behind the mask of, of, of hate and bitterness and materialism was a man that more than anything else, he wanted to see who Jesus is. Amen? Who is the Zacchaeus in your life? Who is hiding behind the mask of all kinds of religions? Who's hiding behind the mask of liberalism? Who's hiding behind the mask of bitterness and anger? But really, if you take them all off, it's somebody more than anything else. They just want to see who Jesus is. I was a high schooler at the Ivory Coast Academy. I had come from a smaller missionary kid school. There were 18 and we had four girls. Well, I got to ICA, and we had, there were 200 of us and 120 girls, and I was happy. And I was like, okay, well, uh, like I wanted to go on dates, but they cost money, you know? 
And so the school had this really good program that they would pay you 15 cents an hour. And I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I did the math and realized that I'd have to work like 20 hours to have a decent date. And so I decided I'd find for something else. And I found out that anything American sells. I mean, you give me your old shoes, I could go down and sell them. And so what I would do is I would walk down the hallways and I'd say, okay, who wants money? And they'd come out and I'm like, oh, give me your jeans or give me something and I'll go sell it and I'll keep 20% and you keep the rest. And so I set up a pretty good business and it was frankly going quite well. And missionaries quit having yard sales. They just bring me their junk and I could sell it. And, um, and, and, and I don't think I ever had anything that didn't sell. I mean, honestly, I'd have to come down price sometimes, but it was really amazing. And in it, I made friends with this guy named Isouf. And Isouf, this guy was amazing. I'd like, I'd walk up and he'd like, I know somebody that wants those pair of, uh, size 12 used American shoes. I mean, he would, he would know the sizes. I'd be like, really? So we'd get on his moped, which we weren't supposed to, but I never got caught, so that wasn't a sin. And, um, <laughs> we, uh, we would go to where they were and we would sell these shoes and I would give him a cut and I would take the other out. There's only one problem. Yusuf was a staunch Muslim. And Yusuf was really dedicated. I mean, during Harmaton, I mean, during Ramadan, he, he wouldn't eat lunch with me. And we'd be in the middle of a sale and all of a sudden a call to prayer come and he'd run off. And sometimes it kind of frustrated me, but I, I came up with this uh, philosophy of evangelism called Nice Pete. You may have heard of it. Um, and in Nice Pete, and I think you may recognize it because I pretty much guarantee everybody in this room pulls the same thing. I would be really nice. And he would come up to me and say, wow, Pete, you're really nice. And I'd say, it's because of Jesus. Right? Okay, who doesn't do that? You thought, I'll be really nice. Why should I share? I'll just be really nice. And this is going to surprise you. But I was nice my whole freshman year. And not once did he ask me why I was so nice. Sophomore year? Junior year? Nothing. Finally, my senior year, I get done. And if you can see the irony in this, I'm getting on the bus to drive to the capital city to catch the plane to, uh, to New York where I could go to school. And he soon comes to say goodbye to me. And he comes up and he grabs me by my arms and he looks me in my eyes and he says, Pete, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And he says, that's what I don't understand. He says, because you say you love me. But you also say that you're a Christian. And as a Christian, you say you believe that if I don't accept Christ, that I'm going to an eternity in hell. And you say you love me. But in four years, you've never once tried to convince me not to go to hell. He said, if there are bandits on a road and you were walking down the road, 
I would do anything I could up to losing my life to keep you from getting beat up by those bandits. But you say I'm going to eternity in hell and you haven't once tried to convince me not to go. Nothing like being rebuked by a Muslim for not witnessing. (laughs) But he's right. And I'm going to see Suf one more time. And it's going to be before the throne. And Jesus is going to say, I know you not. And as they drag him off to eternity in hell, he's going to scream my name. Because my blood, his blood, is on my hands. Who is the Yusuf in your life? See, I believe God has strategically placed you in your neighborhoods. He strategically placed you in your families. He strategically placed you in your jobs. He strategically placed you in your schools. He strategically placed your children on sports teams so that you can be a light to the Zacchaeuses. Will you have blood on your hands? Will you play in the nice peat? Or will you make a difference? The story goes on. And I thought the other interesting thing when I looked at this thing was, if you look in three, verse 3 again, he said he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, could not see over the crowd. Who is the crowd? The disciples? The 72 the people that were following Jesus, the very people that should have been out finding the Zacchaeuses and taking them to Jesus were blocking Zacchaeus's view of Jesus. Amen? Are you blocking somebody's view of Jesus? With your dislikes? With your attitudes? With your arrogances, with your holy huddles. Because, see, you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. The story goes on, and Jesus gets to the place where Zacchaeus says, and says Come on down, for I'm going to your house today. And look at verse 7. It says, And all the people saw this and raised their hands towards heaven and praised God that Jesus was going to eat with the sinner. Amen? Is that what it says? That's not what it says? What does it say? The people begin to mutter. Who are they muttering against? Jesus. I've spoken literally all over this country. In large churches, small churches. And if I'm being honest, and I had to choose one word that would generalize what's happening in our American churches, I would choose the word mutter. And who are we muttering against? Who are we muttering against? 
Jesus. We will never reach the Zacchaeuses until we quit muttering. Amen? Then my favorite verse. But Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, here now, I will give half of what I own to the poor. And if I have wronged anybody of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Amen? Guess what happened? First of all, when the richest man in town gives away half his money, do you think there are any girl, little girls that are dying because they don't have $2 for a bottle of medicine? No! But it goes further than that. He's the head tax collector. He will not cheat anybody in the future. You know why? It will cost him too much money. Amen? So who becomes, Jericho becomes the first city in the Roman Empire that is corruption free. Where would you do business? Jericho. One meal with Jesus. Amen? So if one meal with Jesus can change Jericho, what can a lifetime do in Burkina Faso or Morocco or Tunisia or Georgia or Russia or China? There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of pain. And he's chosen you to be the difference. He has the whole world in his hands, but he's choosing to change it through you. Let's pray. As we have our heads bowed, I'm going to ask each one of you to listen to the Lord. Because I know you have a Zacchaeus in your life. And I know even as I was speaking, the Holy Spirit was speaking to you then. So I'm asking you to make a commitment between you and God. Of how you're going to intentionally reach out to that Zacchaeus. And then I'm going to ask you to listen to the Lord. Because He's asking you to do, be part of this huge thing that we call the Great Commission. And He has a part in it for you. So do you need to change the way you pray? Do you need to change the way you give? Do you need to go? Or do you need to send? May the God that sent his son here on earth to come and change Zacchaeus' life. May the God that as we 
shared the table a few minutes ago, who died on the cross so that we could live forever, be with each one of you. And may you be a light that shines into the darkness. And may God bless you and keep you. And may God do even greater things that you dare to dream of. In your precious and holy name, amen.